Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Could I invite everyone back to their seats, please? We're going gonna, gonna to start by reading Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. Yeah, sweet. All right, I'm going to get started. Yeah, so Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall, because it had, because it had its own foundation on the rock. But everyone who bears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as as their teachers of the law. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. Thanks, Steve. So if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we've been on a journey through the Sermon on the Mount, and today marks the final words of Jesus' world-changing teaching, and it's been quite the journey for us. Matthew is broken up into five different literary blocks, and at each end of the the, the block, at each teaching as it ends, there's a catchphrase that we read, that when Jesus had finished saying these things... And it's this literary clue that we're at the end of the first block and we're about to start the next and we'll get into the block two in 2024 and it's all about miracles and it's all healing stories. But the five blocks of Matthew mirror the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the five teachings of Jesus in Matthew mirror the five sermons of Moses in Deuteronomy. All this to say, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience with a purpose. He's using his brilliant literary mind to say that Jesus is a new Moses with a new exodus for a new kingdom that is upside down than anything that we have experienced or have seen. And it's a new kingdom. So it feels appropriate on this Christ the King Sunday reminding us of the Advent season that we culminate this moment of Jesus' manifesto of this kingdom to come. Of what it might look like to actually adopt the way of Jesus. To walk in the way of Jesus. To live a life after his life. I don't, I don't often title sermons uh, and communicate them on a Sunday But for this week, it felt right that the the title of our talk today is The End of the Beginning. Now, we've talked about a couple different ideas these past two weeks. We looked at the warnings that Jesus provides. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there are three in particular. We're on the third. And the first two have an incredible gravitas to them. There's weighty words used. And we don't want to simply jump to this parable and think it doesn't hold the same weight. In fact, I would, I would contend that it holds even greater weight meant to pull it all together. And we're meant to hear the words of Jesus that in all the warnings, he's trying to do something within us. To move 
our hearts from a place of simply hearing a good idea into acting upon it. N.T. Wright says that many of Jesus' parables were like mazes designed to challenge his listeners to work out for themselves how to get to the heart of the matter. And this is the same here in this final parable from Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. There's research done around the idea of decision making. And in particular, there's this idea of implementation science. And there's a a researcher by the name of Enola Proctor that deals with it in particular. And she's focused on the path between knowledge and action. So what she did is she developed a set of outcomes in 2011 to help deal with some of the different difficulties that they were facing within the science. Funny enough, in a science that was all about implementation, they were getting caught up in the knowledge of it. And so in the irony of that, she began to outline a set of outcomes of how we move from a place of knowledge to action. And and researchers as a whole, they identify that there is a growing divide between the knowledge that we receive and the manner in which we actually implement it. The way in which our culture operates is that we're encountering mass amounts of information on a daily basis and a wave of knowledge that's having a number of impacts upon our life. It's numbing, it's distracting, it's overwhelming, and what it's doing, it's increasing the gap between the knowledge that we receive and our ability to act upon it and implement it. So many of our daily relationships with information are simply this, in one ear, out the other. We just get so much of it that we have become normal in our response of ignorance, of avoidance, of not even really paying attention. And this is unfortunately an aspect of our humanity that has existed for a long period of time. It's definitely elevated with our information age and how we've been inundated with it on a daily basis. But if Jesus is saying this to a first century audience... That I don't want you to just think good ideas. I want you to act upon it. How much more is that an important message for us to hear? At the end of his sermon, Jesus is not communicating a a really catchy statement. He's not providing this like really uplifting sermon and story to wrap it all up. He provides these warnings. And the warning is important because it's Jesus pointing to the difficulty that we have of taking a good idea and actually acting upon it. What are warnings for? They're meant to indicate a danger. And I think that the danger that Jesus is drawing our attention to in these three culminating ideas in this parable is that good ideas can simply stay good ideas. Great ideas can simply be great ideas. Inspirational ideas can maybe stir us up in a moment, but it can stay simply in that moment. And this unfortunate aspect of our humanity is that this happens more often than we care to admit. And there is a gap between our knowledge, our set of information, and the way that we implement and act upon it or practice it in our daily lives. Maybe you're like me. 
and you've got a folder on your phone or on your computer and it's full of screenshots from Twitter of like quotes of like these famous ideas from famous people and you're like, oh, that's a great idea. I should take a screenshot of that and save that for another time. I don't go back to it and look at it again. It's just thousands of these like Twitter screenshots that I don't actually go back to. It's like this accumulation of information and maybe you're not so digitally inclined and it's a physical folder that you've accumulated over time and you've gathered this information and you've said to yourself, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to go back to it. It's going to be valuable to me eventually and we, we just don't. We just do that over and over and over again. We have this propensity and the thing is we are hoarders of information and avoiders of action. This is our predicament. And so for what Jesus is saying is that if you want to follow me, then intellectual assent, momentary inspiration, good vibes, a casual head nod during a sermon isn't going to cut it. Don't get me wrong. He's saying my grace for you is freely given. But if you want to experience the life that I am inviting you into, this idea of the kingdom that I'm presenting, then this broadening gap between knowledge and action that is becoming our normative way of hearing things is not going to cut it. It's what we've been talking about these past two weeks and will continue today. What you do matters. And to follow him, we need to live truthfully. What good is it if we hear all this amazing teaching and we don't do anything with it? Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there's an active verb permeating its way all the way through. And it's this idea, poyeo. Uh, and it's this Greek verb which means to do, to act on, to put into practice. The word itself in the Sermon on the Mount shows up 22 different times. And then in this outro in particular, it shows up 10 different times. It gets a little bit lost in translation, but it's that same meaning over and over again. Put it into practice. Act upon it. Don't just think about it. Do something with it. And it's, and it's a direct pushback against this, fall, this false formula of transformation that was most likely present in that time and is most certainly in ours. And this false formula says that information plus inspiration plus willpower will equal change. This is the formula that we have adopted. Information, inspiration, willpower, change will come. So you hear a good thought, you feel motivated, and you try really hard to to do some of the things that Jesus talks about. To not worry anymore, to not feel lust, to not have anger towards people, to not be greedy. You try really hard, you heard it, you felt inspired, you try really hard, and you say change will come. And maybe it happens in a moment, maybe it happens in in a small segment of, of your willpower actually being engaged but what Jesus is saying over and over again is that you can build a house but it's not the house that is actually going to withstand but it's the foundation that it has to be more than information inspiration and willpower that leads us to transformation in life you have to put the words of Jesus into practice And so Jesus, he brings it to a head in this parable, talking about 
a wise and foolish builder. And it's interesting to note, he doesn't talk about the contrast between a rich and poor builder, smart or dumb, or even good or bad. He chose wise and foolish. So we're going to look at four different ideas within the parable itself that can be applicable to our story of moving towards building wisely. Because the reality is is that we're all building something, even if we are passively doing it. So what are we actually building? The idea of a house was a commonly used metaphor within the ancient Near East period, but it's also a metaphor that I think we can understand today. It was perhaps a little bit different within that time period where whole families existed together, land was associated with business, and everything was kind of tied up into a singular location. So the idea of a house being life, the house being the life that we build, made a lot of sense. But that's what Jesus is moving us towards. And in talking about a wise and foolish builder, what Jesus is doing is he's tapping into an ongoing conversation amongst the Jewish people themselves and in the surrounding nations. In the book of Proverbs, there's a story between a man and a woman that's talking about wise and foolish ideas. And so, obviously, the wisdom is coming from the woman within this story. But what it's actually leading us towards is this conversation of the dichotomy between the two. Wise and foolish builders. Within surrounding nations at the time, there was plenty of these ideas. Wise and foolish. Who is thoughtful and who hasn't paused to give it any thought? Now, in any approach, we sometimes need to stop looking at the thing that we want to be. And we need to be looking at the thing that we want to avoid. We need to look at what the foolish builder is doing to get a full grasp of what maybe wisdom would look like. This same parable shows up in Luke chapter 6, and it gives us some insight into what the foolish builder is doing. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, it says that the foolish builder names Jesus as their Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's the first thought. And then they come to Jesus, and they hear and they attend to what he says. And that's in verse 49. And so it's interesting to note, our foolish builder sounds like someone who's been in church, who's heard really good teaching, and who's even assented to it within their language. Said, yeah, I'm for that good idea, Jesus. And yet is named as a foolish builder because of the way in which it has not been practiced. And this brings us to the first idea from the parable. Houses can look really similar from a distance. The question of what kind of house you're building is probably better framed in this conversation around what are you building your house upon. We can build a house to look a certain way and it can actually be a very different thing that's taking place. In 2014, There was a story in the Wall Street Journal entitled Yoga Posers, Athletic Gear Soars, Outpacing Sport Itself. And the the story was lamenting the disparity between the money spent on purchasing and donning athletic wear and the amount of time that was actually being spent doing something athletic. (laughs) The byline reads, customers snap up stretchy tees and leggings, boosting growth for athleisure apparel. People wear the garb and talk the talk enough to be associated with the group, but they never live the life those they never live the life those clothes or that language or those associations represent. 
They wear hiking boots, but they definitely don't hike. They don yoga leggings, but they don't exercise. They spent money on specialty running shoes. Oh, some of us in the room have done this. But there has been no jogging taking place. They invest in gear and they want to be seen in it. They just don't do with their bodies what the gear is meant to help the body do. And this is what we often do when we hear the words of Jesus. This is a call to last week and this conflict between perception and reality and this call to live truthfully. Jesus is saying in this parable that we need to look deeper and he most certainly is. So often we're captivated with the house that we can see, even if it's in the distance, the details around it. And then we think to ourselves, I need to build a house that looks exactly like that. And we don't pay any attention to the foundation underneath. The foolish builder can have a similar looking house. But what don't the foolish builders do? Well, the foolish person hears Jesus' teaching but doesn't do anything with it. And Jesus doesn't say why. He says because maybe they're busy, tired, bearing trauma. Maybe there's a preference. Jesus doesn't say because he wants us to find ourselves in this story. When are the moments where I've heard a good thing, I've assented to the thought, I have been inspired maybe towards action, and I have done nothing with it? There's a disparity between our understanding of wisdom and knowledge and what Jesus is saying within this text. I would, I would say that wisdom is often associated with a wide variety of variables, whether it's experience, age, whether it's simply saying things in a, in a really catchy manner, maybe an element of charisma tied into it. Maybe it's the quickness of the response. All these different variables that we would often associate with wisdom, that's not what Jesus is pointing to. He's saying very simply that wisdom is actually hearing something and doing it. To be foolish is to hear something and not do it. He's, he's not Picking on anyone in particular, he's calling us all out. There are most certainly moments in my life where I am a foolish builder. I hear a good thought, I get excited about it, and then it remains simply that. And then I continue to build based upon simply the things that I think. And the house of a foolish builder can look very similar to the house of a wise one. And we start to associate the two to simply be the same. Jesus wants us to find ourselves in this story. To see that there's a difference between the two. From the distance, they might look exactly the same. But you might have the same job, same type of relationship. You might be in the same period of life. You might have kids. You might have a dog. You might have the same breed of dog. Everything might be the exact same, but it's not. And you don't find out until the flood comes, until that moment of truth. And that leads to our second idea, that we can expect the flood. When the flood comes, you see the differences between the foundations. Some scholars read the flood language within this text as 
uh, eternal judgment. Augustine in the fourth century interprets the imagery of flood as some kind of hardship in your life. A diagnosis, a tragedy, a loss of a loved one, unemployment, loss of a dream, bad news, some kind of catastrophe, some kind of flood. And notice, it's not if the flood comes, it's when the flood comes. The the inevitability of the human condition is that hardship will come. The flood will come. And Jesus is simply being honest that life can and is hard. And whether you follow him or not, whether you are wise or foolish, both go through floods. With the onset of uh, climate change and a growing awareness around it, there are numerous models that try to put a timeline on the life cycle of coastal cities and when they'll be flooded. I'm not here to talk in a contentious matter about climate change. What is interesting, though, and that I want us to think about, is that regardless of the timeline that is being considered, the expectation of a flood has shifted the manner in which houses are built. You catch that. When you expect the flood, you build your house differently. Jesus is raising our expectation. He's asking us, be honest. He's not asking for ignorant optimism. And he's not asking for chicken little sky is falling mentality either. He's simply saying the flood will come. So build your house accordingly. To build on good foundation is to expect the flood. In our Western privilege, one of the greatest deterrents to genuine practice of faith is the ease of our existence. It lulls us into this false conclusion that the flood will not come. And if it is, it's going to be manageable. And if it comes, I'm good enough to handle it on my own. And our absence of expectation has created an ignorance and an avoidance of need. And it's caused us to actually reallocate our time, our attention, our resources towards things that we've now deemed as important. And ironically, when you expect life to be easy and then it's not, it actually feels way harder. Honestly, this is some of our faith experiences. And the danger we face in moments like it because we didn't have honesty in our approach. We didn't say that a flood was going to come. We didn't have an expectancy of that. And therefore, we go and we attribute the most painful experiences to happen to us because of our faith. We actually adopted a a mentality that Jesus doesn't propagate or present to us. We've come to this, this somehow this conclusion that faith is the avoidance or the absence of struggle. And when it shows up in our life, there's been this conclusion as if to say, well, then faith is not real. God is not real because I've experienced pain. What Jesus is saying is is not that faith as our foundation eliminates hardship. He's saying that my way, the Jesus way, doesn't lead you away from hardship. It leads you through hardship. 
But we have to expect the flood because then we build our house accordingly. And in many ways, this continues to highlight the contrast between wisdom and uh, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom has a short-term lens to it. What can I see in the here and now? What, what am I going to approach life with tomorrow? Whereas godly wisdom wants us to see the future that he has before us. That his vision for your tomorrow is bigger than anything that you've experienced in the present, in the past, or what you believe the future holds. And in the midst of that, we're invited to build a foundation that will survive and last and move through real hardship. Floods will come. And when they come, Jesus is saying, my foundation, my way as your foundation will help you to stand. But after the floods, what we do find is that foundations are often revealed in the aftermath. Unfortunately, there are so many different moments in our year where we are grieving loss of property and life because of natural disasters. But I find that there's often a little glimmer of hope that pops up within these stories, whether it's a tsunami that hits the side of a shore and there's one house that remains standing. And we think to ourselves, well, how does that even happen? It experienced the same flood and yet it stood the test. It, it, it withstood the force of the moment. And Jesus is not trying to separate somehow those who follow him to be absent of the struggle. But he's saying that the foundations that you have, you're going to see in the aftermath, are incredibly strong. The floods reveal what your life is actually built on. And it says within there that when the floods come, there's a fall with a great crash. And here's the thing, we've seen this before. Friends, family, coworkers, people we have grieved. And we've looked at the stories that they've lived and we've seen, to our, seen perhaps as if their houses look the same. And maybe it's not even a, a really big dramatic moment in which things fall apart, but, or maybe it's this slow unraveling, it's this cumulative effect of life not being built around the practice of the way of Jesus. And it finally starts to catch up with somebody. Paul, he writes to Timothy that the sins of some are obvious and they go ahead of them, but the sins of others trail behind. What this parable can reveal to us is that floods, they show what's rotten and they show what's right. They reveal what's rotten and they reveal what's right. Think of it this way. Jesus had a brilliant mind and simultaneously had a brilliant life. But then when we look at what drives Western thinking and we look at great thinkers from within even the last couple hundred years, people like Marx, people like Freud, people who have these brilliant minds to articulate thought in a manner that is captivating and, and can, can even just engage with people where they're at. We would say wholeheartedly, yes, that they, they might have had a brilliant mind, but then we know that they didn't have a brilliant life. We know that the brokenness that existed within their lives was not reflective of the brilliant mind. 
because at some point the floods come. And in the aftermath, the foundation is revealed. And here's the thing that Jesus is saying. There's a reason why you give a warning. You give a warning to someone because you don't want them to experience loss or pain. He's saying, I don't want you to have to experience the pain of the aftermath before changing your foundation. He's calling us to consider it now. Have you simply heard it and left it there? Or have, are you hearing the words of Jesus all throughout the Sermon on the Mount? And are you saying, I'm going to actually begin to practice it? Jesus' vision for a kingdom is not just an ideology. It's not just a set of ideas that you ascribe to in your head. It is a way of life. Jesus' end goal is not to simply inform you. It's to cause transformation. Transformation into being somebody like him. Are you or are you not building your life on the practice of the way of Jesus? For some of you, you have experienced the beauty of Christ coming into your story and sparking real change. And the Spirit of God has moved in your life and has prompted you and has actually even maybe given you a word. This is part of our challenge between knowledge to action that I've experienced in my own life. Sometimes God speaks into our life, whether it's through people, whether it's through some divine moments, whether it's through scripture, and we hear it and we're inspired and we are ready to go, and then it simply stays there. How many of you have had a word from someone that has spoken life into you, that has filled your cup in that moment, that has given you a vision for the future, and you have not done anything with it? This is Jesus saying, simply, wisdom would be, I want to do something with it. We're in this practice of prayer as a church and perhaps you've, you haven't made space for intentional intimacy with God despite coming on a Sunday and maybe feeling, oh, that is a space that is absent in my life. Perhaps you are aware of lacking passion for God and you keep telling yourself, well, I'm going to get to it eventually. Perhaps you know that you're carrying bitterness towards someone and you've actually moved toward this place of saying awareness is enough. And forgiveness doesn't seem like a possibility and unforgiveness seems like the normal. You haven't done anything with the words and the teachings of Jesus. And like I said, some of you have maybe even received an encouragement, a word, and it resonated in your heart. It filled you with hope. And it was confirmed by those around you. And you wrote it in a book one time, and you've never looked at it since. The teaching of Jesus does not end with a nicety. The teaching of Jesus ends with a warning. Wake up. Do it. Put it into practice. Make me your foundation and watch how your life is able to sustain the floods that come. Don't wait for the aftermath to change it. In the final words of this passage, there is a trust placed within Jesus' teaching. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he's just told this amazing parable, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. 
because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Especially within Canadian culture, we are extremely averse to authority or even just the idea of it. But I want to remind you that Jesus' authority that's talked about in this is not rooted in title, an org chart, in gender, in hierarchy, or in some oppressive system. The way in which Jesus entered the world withheld privilege from being his platform. Jesus' authority was rooted in the truth of his words and the truth of his life. This was the authority from which he spoke. The message translation says it was apparent he was living everything he was saying. And this is the most potent kind of spiritual authority. When you stand up, known or unknown, and you speak truth and it corresponds to reality that is around us and to your own life, there is authority. Your house is your life. Everybody builds a life. And the question isn't, are you building your life? It's what are you building your life on? Underneath all of the distraction and fanfare, what is the bedrock of your life built upon? Is it Jesus and practicing his his way, empowered by the Spirit, or is it something else that will not survive when the flood comes? I've heard the line, halfway in is actually all the way out. And Jesus is asking us to do more than go halfway in. To not just pick the pieces of his call to a different way of living that seem familiar and comfortable with us in the current moment. Because that's how it often operates. We hear Jesus talking about about greed, but the idea of lust being something that we move past doesn't feel like it's accessible in this moment. So I'm just going to worry about this. I'm not saying that this is a call to perfection, but this is a shift of our motive, a shift of our attention, a shift of our practice, that we would actually desire the things of the kingdom, all of it included, that we're being invited into. Not simply so that we can get into heaven. Grace is given freely, but because life in the here and now flourishes when we adopt the way and the practice of Jesus. This is what he's saying to us. Hear all of my teaching, but don't just hear it, do it. We talked about that false formula of transformation, but Jesus' formula of transformation looks more like this. Teaching plus practice plus community, all empowered by the Holy Spirit, leads to transformation. The Sermon on the Mount is a teaching. The Sermon on the Mount calls us to practice, do something with it. It says, the last thing he says is, whoever practices these commands will be called great. And then within the Sermon on the Mount, there is the plural you used over and over again meant to indicate community. Teaching, practice, community, all empowered by the Holy Spirit is what leads to transformation. And to be honest, this is kind of like humbling to say as a preacher that the Bible teaching that you're receiving on a Sunday doesn't necessarily transform you. It's not a bad thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's part of the process, but it's not the thing. In fact, it's not the thing that's tied into everything. That's the Holy Spirit. 
Many people have been around church, have gone to church every single Sunday for decades, who know the Bible better than I do, who, who know all of the, the book of Romans word by word, and yet their lives are not practicing the way of Jesus. And the fruit of their life is they still feel racked by anxiety. They're still driven by father wounds. They're getting identity from their accomplishments and their accumulation of other love rather than Christ's love towards us is what's setting their life forward. And all the different motives of the heart are just the same. And the houses look the same as if the foundation is right. But when the flood comes, it is clear which one's going to stand. Knowing the Bible is not the same thing as living the way of Jesus of Nazareth. And hear me, God has too high of an opinion of you to simply force you to do something. He created you as a free, intelligent being that has a will at the center of your person, and he wants to see that transformed. Worship team, you can join me at the front. And he... And he wants us to know that it's going to take more than like a good, good sermon. It's going to take more than singing some songs. It's going to take more than one moment of prayer to actually see that change. It's going to take a surrender of our lives. So here's our call to action this morning. It's about the foundation. It's not about the house. We need to expect the flood because we will build appropriately. And don't wait for the aftermath before making a change. Warnings are always meant to tell you something. They don't just want you to stop doing something. They want you to go in a different way. Hearing and not doing is foolish. Hearing and doing is wise. It's simple. And the challenge for us this morning, Jesus doesn't end with anything dramatic. He ends with something simple. And that's how we're going to finish our, our time before entering into some time of communion. You have Jesus' teachings. What will you do with them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you would speak to us in a way that would meet our lives where it's at. That every aspect of the Sermon on the Mount speaks to what it is to really be human. Lust and greed, anger and anxiety. We've, we've, we struggle with these things and, and so much more. And you speak directly to them and you invite us into a place of freedom. To follow you is to find freedom. And so we pray, Jesus, that here this morning, as we ask ourselves honest questions that you would give us boldness to begin to walk that path. To hear your words and to do something with them. Stir within our community a boldness and a courage to follow your way. Spirit of God, we need you. It's got to be more of you and less of us. 
Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us. And for those who are hearing these words and feels like, I'm exhausted. I don't have any strength left. I've tried this before. I, I'm, I'm past the point of even giving a bit of myself towards this. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a revitalization and a renewal that takes place within the hearts and minds of your people. That draws us into your way, your path. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'd find freedom this morning. We declare that that truth is possible in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.